This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are going to be in Proverbs, second to last week in our journey through Proverbs this summer. And so if you've got your Bible, open it to Proverbs 13 and Proverbs 22. Put your finger in Proverbs 13 and another one in Proverbs 22. We're going to read from those two places this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a hardback black one in the pew in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab that one, use that this morning. If you don't have a good Bible that you enjoy reading at home, just take that one home with you. It's a gift. So let's start here. One of the most freeing, healthy things you can do is admit that you are not perfect. It's one of the most freeing, healthy things that you can do is to admit that you are not perfect. And that sounds simple, even kind of obvious and common. People will say, well, of course I know that I'm not perfect. But here's the thing. Functionally, even though we might be able to say we know we're not perfect, functionally, we sometimes have a hard time admitting that. So maybe we wouldn't use the word perfect, but you can substitute in a number of other statements that are sort of just under perfect, and then you can see how true it is that we sometimes have trouble admitting this. So you could say, well, I know I'm not right all the time. Yeah, maybe not all the time, but you think you're right a lot. I know I don't know everything. Maybe you don't think you know everything, but you think you know an awful lot. I know I make mistakes, but do you know you make lots of them? So here's why it's freeing to be able to say that and and, and actually mean those things. If it's not, you know, literal perfection, if my goal is functional perfection, where I think I'm right just most of the time, where I, I think I know most things, where I have trouble admitting when I've made mistakes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to close myself off. I'm going to build walls, and I'm going to just wear people out around me. Have you ever spent time around somebody that can't admit when they're wrong? It's exhausting. Now, on the other hand, when you spend time with people who know that they're flawed, who can quickly own their shortcomings and can admit that that they've done things wrong, they know how to ask forgiveness, they want to make things right knowing that they've done wrong, that, on the other hand, is so refreshing. The word I would would actually use is it's easy. It's easy to be around people who know that they don't have it all together, who know that they need forgiveness, who know that they've made mistakes, and they want to make those things right. They can admit it and want to make those things right. So prideful people just bring tension wherever they go with them. But humble people bring peace. So one of my favorite Bible teachers is a pastor named Ray Ortland. I think he was in his uh, mid-50s when he started a new church. And, and right from the beginning, he put these three sayings into the DNA of the church 
just put them right in front of the people and said, this is what this new church is going to be about. Uh, He called it the church's mantra. And the first thing is this. He says, number one, I'm a complete idiot. And maybe you think, well, that's harsh, or I don't use the word idiot or something like that. Sorry, parents, if you don't use the word idiot in your house, but that's it. I'm a complete idiot. But it's not harsh, and it's helpful if, first, you can learn to say that about yourself. But second, if you've got a whole group of people who've learned to say that about themselves, if you're all saying it together. And if you wonder, well, where do you even get something like that? It's biblical. That's just just kind of a modern-day restating of at least two places. Here's Isaiah 521. Woe to those who are wise and shrewd in their own sight. Here's how the New Testament says it. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So let's just listen to the sequence of, of, of Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. How do you do that? Well, it answers it by saying, do not be haughty, so don't be proud. Don't think too highly of yourself. And then it says, associate with the lowly. So if you want to live in harmony, if you don't want to be haughty, the next thing is associate with the lowly. Why? Because you have nothing to gain from the lowly. You're just free to bless and give. If you associate with, you know, the beautiful or the powerful or the rich, you'll naturally want something they have. You just get jealous. People like, we like rubbing up against that type of person. But if you associate with the lowly, you're just free to bless, free to give. And then the last part, kind of the conclusion, never be wise in your own sight. So at least part of the answer, a big part of the answer to how do Christians live in harmony together is not being wise in our own sight. And the reason is, if we think that we're clever, or right all the time, or think we have it all together, if we think we're somebody that others should be looking to, we'll just wreck that with our own pride. But if we can see the wisdom and the value and the giftedness in other people and what other people bring, And if we can just look at other people and go, well, I have a lot to learn from them. That actually blesses everybody. If we don't walk into rooms and think, everybody should be glad I'm here, I'm going to set things straight. But if we walk into rooms and go, I'm so glad these other people are here, they're going to set me straight. We're all going to be blessed by that. Now, if you wonder, how does that mantra Number one, I'm a complete idiot, finish off. Let me just finish that off before we move on because you can see how these build on one another. Uh, Number one is I'm a complete idiot. Number two is despite that, my future is incredibly bright. And I love that because I, I think it's really unexpected from number one. But it's absolutely true because of the gospel. Number one works, I'm a complete idiot because there's there's never been a single day that you did enough to earn God's favor and blessing. But because of Jesus, God's going to bless you anyways. So you can be 
subperfect. Your flaws can be on full display, which they always are to God, but they can be on full display to other people as well, and God will still say, I love you so much that I gave my son to pay for your imperfections and to trade his righteousness for your unrighteousness. And because of that trade, it's not just that your future is bright, but it's unimaginably glorious. So it's freeing to admit that we don't have it all together, that we're not perfect, especially because of what God has done for us in Christ. The last thing Ray Ortland says is number three, anybody can get in on that. Anybody can admit that they don't have it all together. Anybody can have the glorious future that God promises because of Jesus. Jesus isn't just here for the good and the pure. He's here for the screw-ups and the idiots. He's here for the, the, the formerly proud. And he's here for you if you repent of your sins and trust in him. And the reason I, I start with that this morning is that we're talking about discipline and discipleship through the book of Proverbs. Both our own discipline, because we all need to be trained, and then if there's others that were given to help mature in life and in the Lord, how to discipline those under our care to grow in godliness. So we're talking about discipleship and we're talking about discipline. Uh, Discipleship is a word that means learning. A disciple is a student. Christians are all disciples of Jesus. We need, Ephesians 4 says, to learn him. And that's why It's fundamental to the true Christian life to be able to admit that we're not perfect. In fact, you can't be a Christian unless you can admit that you are deeply flawed. You have to be able to admit that you have so much to learn. The most mature Christians I know are the humblest, not the most put together. As a pastor, I don't get nervous when people know they're rough and have a lot of Jesus to learn. That doesn't make me nervous at all. What worries me is when people think they're pretty close and they've learned just about all there is to learn. That's what what worries me. So discipline and discipleship. Let's read a a few verses of Proverbs and then we'll kind of define those terms and and go from there. So if you've got your finger in, we're going to be in Proverbs 13... Read three verses, 22, 23, and 24, and then we're going to flip over to one verse in Proverbs 22. So Proverbs 13, starting in verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now flip over to Proverbs 22, 
We're going to go to verse 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So this is discipline and discipleship. But really, biblically, we see that those two concepts working as two sides of the same coin. So discipleship is teaching, it's instruction. And discipline is correction. Instruction and correction, two sides of the same coin. You see that? If we're going to teach somebody something important over the long haul, expect that you're going to need to speak and show instruction to them, and you're going to need to bring correction because they're not going to do it right all the time. Nobody is born knowing everything, and nobody gets it right 100% of the time. So teaching and correcting are are similar, but they're not the exact same thing. Uh, So think of one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter. Peter was one of his closest disciples. He was with Jesus during the the highest, lowest points here on earth. He observed Jesus. He heard all the public teaching of Jesus. Peter also had a a special connection to Jesus. He He was there for the private moments with Jesus. There's arguably no one closer to Jesus on earth than Peter was. So Peter was discipled by Jesus. He learned that way, being near to him. But we see in the Gospels, Peter was brash and impulsive and arrogant. He needed discipline. One of the most poignant times of discipline, first of all, wasn't even planning on mentioning, at one point, Jesus tells Peter to get behind me, Satan. That's discipline. But another one is on the night before Jesus went to the cross, Peter deserted Jesus. And so Jesus, after he was resurrected, as a part of his discipleship, but as part of his discipline, he needed to admonish Peter. He needed to correct him. It is a model of biblical discipline. Jesus sits Peter down, says, if you want to follow me, this is the way it needs to be. And so what he does is he brings three things, and this is going to frame the rest of our time together. Jesus talks with Peter. Jesus shows Peter. Jesus disciplines Peter in a way that's true and loving and gracious. And that's how we should see our discipleship of Jesus and and approach both the discipline we need and for those of us who are disciplining others, the discipline we give. Our discipleship and our discipline should be defined by truth, done in love, and filled with grace. Because that's how God deals with us. And it's how we should disciple others. So using those three ways that God works with us as a guide, I want to show you how Proverbs does this. And really the whole of the the scriptures just testify that that's how God is toward us and and, and how we can be a blessing to other people. Discipleship and discipline, again, defined by truth, done in love, and filled with grace. So first, how how is godly discipleship and discipline defined by truth? Let's just go back, Proverbs 13, 22. We already read that, so hopefully you kept your finger in there. 13, 22 again. 
A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is, is laid up for the righteous. There's an element of truth core to the, the teaching of Proverbs throughout present here. And that's that there is a difference between a good and righteous person and a foolish sinner. We don't do people any favors when we pretend that there are lots of ways to live well in the world. Over and over again, Proverbs will say that the wise fear the Lord and they walk uprightly in his ways and the foolish ignore him and live according to their own passions. Now, not everything in life can be you know, reduced to two things or an either-or. But this is one of those times where it can be. You are either living for the Lord or you are not. And here in verse 22, the contrast is seen in what happens to the toil and the life's work of those who seek to please God as opposed to those who are in it for themselves. There was a similar promise that, that came earlier in the book. Chapter 2, 21 and 22 says, For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So skepticism is my default. Whenever I hear something like this, the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous or, or the wicked will be cut off from the land, immediately I want to ask, what about all the dishonest cheaters I see that seem to be doing pretty well? That's just the natural skeptic in me wanting to know why a lot of crooked people seem to be doing awfully well in the world. To answer that and, and, and to help other people see what, what the writer of Proverbs is saying here, we need to remember a couple things. Uh, one, we've said this before in Proverbs, these are Proverbs, not promises. Not every dishonest person will be found out in their lives. And not every dishonest person will be brought to ruin. Lots of them will be. But some won't. Some are going to make it through. That's just the way this broken world works. And the second thing is most of the time, what we see from the outside is only a small sliver of what's really going on. The testimony all throughout the scriptures is whether a person is wicked or not is not always evident to those around them, but the Lord always knows. The Lord sees. Nothing is hidden from him. So if he says they'll be rooted out and they'll be cut off and eventually they'll be ruined, it might not mean according to the norms of this world. It might mean in other ways. And on top of that, even in this world, we don't always know what's going on in people's lives. Just because somebody seems to have one thing going well for them doesn't mean everything else is as well. People who tend to use others, to trade their integrity for the fleeting pleasures of this world, to treat other people as a means to their end, that most often catches up with people in one way or another. It might seem from a distance like it's not, 
But just because somebody has money or fame or power doesn't mean they're happy. It doesn't mean they love themselves. It doesn't mean others love them. It doesn't mean that they're getting what they want out of life. Most of the time, when the Bible talks about an inheritance from the godly to their children, it doesn't mean literal wealth. It means the blessing of the Lord and giving over a spiritual inheritance. And so there's a way of looking around and saying, well, there's a few things that this world values that this person seems to have. But I would bet that when people have achieved those and attained those in crooked, dishonest ways, they have not been blessed in the ways that truly matter. And they are not going to leave anything of a great spiritual inheritance to their children or certainly their children's children. When the Bible talks about an inheritance, it's not usually talking about wealth. It means an inheritance that lasts. It means one that really matters. Listen, you can pass a few dollars on to your, your kids or your, maybe even there's even a little bit left over for your grandchildren. But that's nothing compared to a legacy of faithfulness to Christ and teaching your children and grandchildren to trust the Lord above all else. That's what really matters. So you can go, oh, look at them. They're gonna, their kids are really going to have a lot of money. So what? There's lots of money in the world. There are fewer and farther between godly people who've learned the richness of trusting Christ. Make that your ambition to hand on to the generations that come after you, whether you have children or just whether you younger people in the Lord than you. Make that your ambition to hand forward. That's the foundation of Christian discipleship and discipline, learning and passing on trust in the Lord. What is true is that honoring him and walking in his ways are always the right thing to do. Personal holiness, uprightness, are more valuable than worldly gain. Verse 22 says that there will come even a time when the sinner's gain is given over to the righteous. How does that happen? How is that even possible? Uh, here's a simple attempt to just answer that one way. And that's just to say this. Sinners don't prosper forever. But people who hope in Christ do. You get that? Sinners do not prosper forever. But people who hope in Christ prosper forever and ever and ever. Eventually, one day, sinners are punished for their selfishness. But, but men and women and, and boys and girls who believe in Jesus Christ, that his righteousness is their righteousness, they are rewarded with glory. And, and the stark truth is that one day, those who have put all their faith in the things of this world will find themselves with nothing, because all that's going to crumble away. But those whose faith is in Jesus will take hold of an unending inheritance. That's the truth. So learn that for yourselves and teach it to other people. Godly discipleship and discipline is first of all defined by truth. Second, it's done in love. Uh, let's look again at, at verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. 
but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, this is, gonna, this is where we get into talking a little bit more specifically to parents especially and, and people who are given the discipline of others. But the principles are clear for everybody. There is such a thing as biblical discipline. There's church discipline. There's ways that we can help other people grow in Christ that are their correction. Remember, discipline is just correction. It's the other side of discipleship. And so anytime that, that's happening, whether it's with your children whether it's with somebody, a brother or sister in Christ that you just want to correct, if it's not happening because of love, the whole approach is going to be misguided. So you could, you could paraphrase this proverb like this. The most loving thing you can do for your child is to consistently discipline him or her. The way the proverb says it is it is kind of puts that in the other order. If you aren't disciplining your children, the proverb says, hate, What that really means is you're failing them. Uh, The reason is, is, is you're not giving them what they need. Children need discipline. They need to know, you know, that they can't have emotional outbursts when when things don't go their way. They, They need to know that kindness toward other people is not optional. And they need to know, most of all, that God has made them in his image to be his son or daughter, and and to live with him for eternity. But they need to know that if they spend their life fighting him, they will alienate themselves from him and be cut off from him. So you discipline your children well. When you do it consistently, when you do it out of love, when it's not your anger or your frustration, and your goal is to teach them to know and love, and to be known and loved by God. And listen, children can often tell the difference when you're disciplining in love and when you're just upset. Like, like there, there are times as a dad when I am just, just I'm, I'm just angry. I'm just mad. I'm just upset that I've not been obeyed, that one of my children is misbehaving. And what I can see when I step back from that is actually discipline at that point, it actually becomes all about me. This outburst, this disobedience, this whatever, this has inconvenienced me. It's embarrassed me, you know, in public. It's disturbing my peace. And so I just kind of get upset at that, and, and I'll just hand out some kind of discipline for that. But you, but you know what happens when it's sort of all about me, and it's sort of done just out of my being upset? It's hardly, if ever, effective. It just doesn't work. But when I can look at my children and I can say I love them and for them to mature, for them to grow in godliness, for them to learn to follow Christ, whatever's happening right now is not helpful behavior. It's not a helpful attitude. What they've done, this needs to be corrected for their own good. And one of the key tools in their discipline is my correction. So I will talk to them, and there may be punishment, because punishment can be a helpful tool when it's done well. That has a much better chance, I've noticed as a dad, of being effective in the lives of my children, being successful in my discipline, when I can step back and say, how is this for their good? So here's just a few practical things that'll help you to know the difference as a parent. 
Uh, this isn't a parenting seminar. If you want to talk more, just, just ask me about these, these afterward. I've often thought, I'm going to write a book on parenting, and I think what it'll be called is How Not to Parent Your Kids. Like 101 ways I may have screwed up mine, maybe you won't screw up yours quite as bad. That's my, that's my working title for my parenting book. Let me just give you two. I cut these down for the sake of time. One. One for you, one for them. Uh, number one, something really practical. This is old school advice. Before you discipline, count. Count to ten. Uh, nobody's kid ever, you know, grew up, dropped out of school, and joined a gang because you didn't put the hammer down on their disobedience in the first three seconds. That never happened to anybody. But when you've learned, if you can just count to ten, it gives you a chance to take a step back, think what's really going on here, what do I really want to do in this situation. My worst discipline comes when I just, boom, take that. That doesn't go well. My best discipline comes when I say, I just need not even a moment. I just need seconds to think what is happening in this moment and what will serve my child best. Count. Number two, here's for your parents and here's your curveball. Where you haven't disciplined well, apologize to your children. Nothing will teach your children more about the kindness, mercy, and grace of God than when their parents admit that they've made mistakes and they ask for forgiveness. This has been the most effective thing in my fatherhood that I have done. I teach my children that I'm not perfect and I model for them then what it means to ask for forgiveness and what it means to rest in the grace and the mercy of God. So parents, you haven't done this well all the time. That's okay. Where you've done it poorly, ask for their forgiveness, ask for the forgiveness of the Lord. It will teach them about growing in the grace of God. All right, third thing, we'll wrap this up. Godly discipleship and discipline is filled with grace. Ties into what we just said. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. You want your children to grow in the way of the Lord, which is holiness, which is righteousness, but that's also grace. God is a God of grace. Ties in with forgiveness. Biblically, discipline is not an action of punishment. It is a gift of grace. Listen to how this is said in the New Testament. This is Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Later it goes on to say that discipline seems unpleasant. Toss it off and feels like suffering. But from the perspective of God, it is what we have to endure for a little while so that we can learn more of his grace. And that's how we see in this, we're all continually and regularly being disciplined by God, not because he dislikes us, but because he loves us. So think about it this way. For children, and, and for you as an adult, Godly discipline is not given so that you would feel bad, but so that you would see that we've missed the goal, missed the mark, 
And next time, we would seize the opportunity to obey and trust God. That's grace being taught so that next time we could trust and obey God. This is even what Jesus did in, in, in what he shows us how to do. Earlier in Hebrews 5.8, it says that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, when it, when it says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, it doesn't mean that he was disobedient. Jesus never was. It doesn't mean that he was disobedient, so he needed to be punished. It means that throughout his life, he always obeyed the will of the Father, and his suffering on the cross was the ultimate opportunity to glorify God by and through his ongoing obedience. And seeing things that way, that Jesus Christ is doing this, was treated by God in the same way that God treats us, it should completely reframe what we think about our own discipleship of Jesus and, and, and how we approach disciplining our own children or other people. We aren't disciplined ourselves because God is punishing us. We're disciplined because God loves us. And through his discipline, he's giving us his grace. And in the same way, we don't punish children simply for the sake of punishment. The punishments that come and the punishments we give help us help them grow to next time obey. Many people will believe that they face hardship because that is God punishing them. Folks, that is a misunderstanding of the gospel. It is true that there is punishment for sin. But if you believe in Jesus, you don't bear that punishment. He does. Even to this day, on this day, right in this moment, and on every day for the rest of your life, your disobedience was placed upon Jesus on the cross. Any debt that you incurred was paid. That's the reframing of discipline. You and I still need to learn to follow Jesus. But now, because of the cross, because our sin was paid for, we learn to follow him in the freedom and under the grace of knowing that one day God won't get angry and send us away. Everything he now gives us is grace. And when you discipline children in the same way, not out of your anger, not with them wondering, have I disobeyed my father? Have I disobeyed my mother? And they will grow angry with me and reject me and send them away. But when we discipline them and say, my child, whom I love, who I want to grow in godliness, this is not me sending, my discipline is not me sending you away. My discipline is actually me bringing you near. Because that's what God's discipline does for us. It is not a symbol or the significance in the work of God sending us away. It is him drawing us near. He disciplines because we are his sons and daughters. And so parents, even when you discipline, you can do it with grace. You give them the grace of knowing the truth. This is the gospel. This is the law and the goodness of God. Make that clear. 
The second thing is, is you discipline in grace when you do it, explaining to them you're not being cast off. This is because I want to keep you close, close to me and close to Christ. And the third thing is you discipline in grace when sometimes you don't give them what they deserve. Now, this one's tricky. You have to be consistent in your biblical discipline, especially parents. But don't throw the book at your kids every time. Ephesians says don't provoke your kids to anger. Not every infraction needs you to rise up as judge and jury. God doesn't do that with us. He is daily overlooking our offenses. God overlooks so much. God has been so gracious to us. He has not held anything, in fact, against us, but he's nailed it all to the cross with Christ. 